Good morning. Hey, you know, sometimes uh, as a pastor, as a teacher, you wonder if what you say ever kind of like gets through and people heard what you know, all that kind of stuff, you know. So um, when uh, I spoke last Sunday on Memorial Day, um, Patty Payette uh, mentioned to her daughter um, to uh, listen to the message, and so she did. And so when uh, she went home, uh, she made up this little uh, poster sign. Uh, they have gone home uh, to keep us safe. These were the soldiers who sacrificed their lives and why we celebrate Memorial Day. And then uh, she made this for, was it a family reunion, Patty? Like a family picnic? And so she put it on a, a table so everybody that went along the table had to see this. And then and then Patty also told me that, that apparently... Um, she also, Gianna also made brownies for that picnic the day before, and that this was put on top of the brownies to protect them from her dad, uh, <laughs> who wanted to eat the brownies that were made specially for the picnic. So, in any case, so thank you, Gianna. And don't you think it's wonderful when children that age uh, sort of get it, you know? So, through no prompting of her mom other than to, to listen, she did listen and it came through. So, that's wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, okay, so we're on this series where we're talking about the defense of the faith or what we call apologetics. And I left you last week with three questions, uh, three questions to think about over the course of this week. And so uh, I'm going to ask you, I'm just going to ask for a raise of hands if anybody uh, gave some consideration of these questions. And what were, uh, you know, what was your experience in relationship to these questions? So, here they are. Uh, what is the most difficult question you have ever been asked about God? What is the most difficult question you have ever been asked about God? So, can you think of anything? The most, oh, and you know what, while you're thinking about it, let me just frame this out a little bit. It can be a challenging thing when you are deeply invested in something that's very precious to you, really meaningful. And when somebody may challenge that particular thing that's precious to you and, and challenge it in a way that may, that may shake you to your core about why it is so important and so precious. So it's also, for many people, it's almost hurtful to be a believer, to know that you love Jesus and that Jesus is a significant part of your life. He is the part around which you arrange the whole of your life. And then for somebody to call that into question, and, and, and then you, you want them to know what you know. You want them to experience what you experience, and yet there may be this cynicism, uh, in, uh, this uh, uh, lack of faith, uh, those kinds of things that, where they just can't relate to what you believe and what you think. 
So when any of these three questions emerge in your life, on the one hand, deep inside, you, you might be afraid that they may ask you a question that you can't answer and that may shake you to your very core about who it is and why it is you believe in what you believe. But on the other hand, on the other end of things, when people ask you any of these three, anything related to these three kinds of questions, it's, it's, it can be hurtful and you wish so badly that you could break through the barrier in their heart and in their mind. Does this make sense to everybody? You know, so I think we're all over the place on this kind of a thing. So, so this really isn't a, a, an academic exercise. I mean, it's deeply rooted in our faith. So, what is the most difficult question you have ever been asked about God? Yeah, Ruth? Um, She's not a plant, by the way. I didn't put her back here to, because, yeah. Go ahead, bud. Okay, yeah. So why does an all-loving God and an all-powerful God allow evil to prevail in the world in which we live? So anybody have an answer for that? <laughs> Carol, Carol was raising her hand. She had another question, but she didn't want to answer yeah. I have a similar yeah, so very similar uh, kind of thing. Why would God allow her, the, the sister of a colleague of hers, to die from an, in an abusive relationship? Yeah. Anybody want to respond to that? You want to? Yeah, Jerry. Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah. Okay. So Jerry gave a two-part response uh, to that, which was which was very good. That we live in this world that is that has been broken by by the fall, damaged by the fall, and so uh, so sin and evil are pervasive, and. Um, and then, but from that sin and evil, uh, we can also, the, the contrast of God's beauty and love is, is even more sharper than what it would be otherwise. So the question that Ruth raised and that, that Carol also uh, underscored has to do with, it's interesting, when I was a teenager, the typical question 
or comment would be, well, if God exists, can you prove his existence? So, so there was this scientific, there was a scientific question. They wanted you to prove the existence of God. People don't ask that question so much anymore. The question they ask is what we call a theodicy. So theodicy is a, is a philosophical science that, that struggles with that question. If God is all-powerful and all, all good, why does evil prevail in the world in which we live? So, and I'm, I'm, I'm planning to spend at least a Sunday, a whole Sunday on that question. So I, I won't spend a whole Sunday on it today, but it is the question of our time. It is the question of our time. So if there are skeptics or cynics out there about the existence of God, it has to usually, it usually revolves around theodicy. And there, there are no small number of people here who have experienced pain and suffering, if not in their own lives, then in the lives of people who are very close to them, that they love very much. And so uh, you may have struggled with that question as well. And, uh, and I do think that there are rational answers to that question that could be very helpful. Yeah, Frank? So Frank is stealing part of my sermon that I'm going to have for, uh, <laughs> for later on in this summer, but he's absolutely correct that, that there's really a lot more good in the world than, than there is evil in many respects, but we only see the evil and not the pervasive presence of good as well, and so there, there is that there is that part of that argument that's there. So that's, okay, so that's very good. So that's probably, let's just stop with that and say that is the most difficult question. That is a difficult question. There are some answers to that question that I think are rational and acceptable. Uh, yeah, so built into that question, if God is all-powerful, if God is good and all-powerful, why does he allow evil to prevail? Um, then uh, there, are that, there are a gazillion assumptions laced within that question that, um, that you need to address, and Frank addressed one of them. So it was very good. Number two, what is the most pressing question that you personally have about God? What is the most pressing question that you that you personally have about God? Anybody here have a pressing question? Yeah, Frank. So it kind of goes along with, with the first question. But, yep. Uh, and God, God created everything in the, in the world and the universe and the whole bit. If, if that's the case, then he created Satan, and Satan is the, the root of all evil. Well, why doesn't he just hate Satan out? Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, there, so that's, a, that's a very good question as well. And, um, I, and so that's a question that uh, some of the great literary writers, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, John Milton, Paradise Lost, there's, I think Dante also, uh, the Infer Dante's Inferno also asks those kinds of questions or they're implied in that kind of literature. Um, and uh, again, that's probably, uh, you know, it's a, it's a better part of a sermon on, on Sunday to address that. Um, I, I would say that Satan is the great purveyor of evil, but you could eliminate Satan and evil would still prevail because we're fallen, okay? So he accelerates our fallenness. He accentuates our fallenness. Yeah, Ada. Yeah. Okay, so for people who might be listening online, Ada raises the question about free will and the role that free will plays in all of these questions. So Ada's stealing part of my sermon too in the future, but I will say this. I had a conversation with a family member years ago. Do you remember the tsunami that hit Japan? Uh, what was it, 10, 12 years ago? And, and wiped out a, 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 you know, a number of people. And so... Uh, my my family member said, like, where, where's these people are just living alongside the, you know, the shore. They're minding their own business. And all of a sudden, this tsunami comes in and wipes everybody out. Like, where, where's God in that? Did you know that along the edge of Japan are these giant statues that are ancient? And inscribed on those statues would be something like this. Do not build your homes below this line of statues because once in a while giant tsunamis come in and wipe everybody out but people still built their homes and cities and things like that along the beach thinking that they were so that's the free will thing right i mean you you're rolling the dice on that kind of a thing and so that's part of it that's not all of it but that's but that's part of it when people in California build their homes on the side of a cliff and get lots of rain and then hundreds of homes tumble into a ravine, you're rolling the dice, you know? You know that probably there's a chance, a good chance, that that might happen to you. So yeah, free will plays a large part in all of this. So third question. Yep, yep. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Sherry. <laughs> um, did you think about Job? Yes. And how Satan you know, bit the head of Satan. Yes. Uh, uh, Tempt Job. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah, and, and boy, there are just a gazillion examples like that. Uh, we, Ruth and I have a kind of a family member that, so, oh, so what Sherry said was, uh, for those people who are listening, Sherry said about how um, there are certain people in life that God chooses to use their life um, where they have opportunity to be faithful or unfaithful and um, and their job is to be faithful to 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 glorify God, uh, even in the midst of suffering. And so, so for example, remember Mary, when Mary was told that she would give birth to Jesus. Um, Mary knew that there would be suffering involved, and she her she said, "I am the Lord's servant; may it be as you have said." And that there are some people in life. So this family member would say, and he had a terrible, terrible disease, that he, he's, he's still alive today and he's actually flourishing. But through that season of his life, he concluded that the Lord wanted to use him in his suffering to demonstrate um, how, how the love and, and care and um, glory of God and he said that if that's what it was that was okay with him so he was one of those unique people that had that capacity that kind of faith so that people would ask him well how can you how can you how can you endure this I mean you're you're a pastor how can you how can you believe that God is and so he would just have a chance to give his testimony and to share how God was working in his life through that terrible suffering so we all marvel at that. We just hope we aren't that person that God wants to, you know, use in that kind of a way, right? So anyway, uh, yeah. So there's, yeah, Patty. Okay. Oh, oh, wait, wait, you, you got to give me a little bit of a chance there. So Patty asked the question, why, why does God let the rain fall on the just and the unjust? Why does, God, why does God withhold the rain from people who are just, but give rain to people who are unjust? Why, why does he bless them, in other words? Why does he bless some people with long life when they're clearly they're bad people or not believers or whatever, but... He takes the life of people who are believers and 
their life is shortened by some kind of tragedy or whatever. Um, so those, that's, the, again, those are really good questions. Um, and there's no one silver bullet answer for that. I think there are some uh, that help give perspective to that. Um, but uh, well, so when I ask, you know, were there people here with difficult questions, that this is the kind of stuff that we want to bring up because, because I think everybody can relate to that. We just, uh, my, my son's wife, her maid of honor, had two grandparents that were just riding a motorcycle and they lost control and they, they both were killed. Uh, they were in their 60s, um, but they were both killed tragically and the funeral was yesterday and they were beloved, beloved. I mean, uh, the funeral, the, the, the line, the receiving line, not only went outside the church, it went for blocks people who wanted to express their condolences. So they were both believers as well. So, yeah, so I will, I will try to address that in the future as well. It's a great question. Go, what's your second question? I'm not touching that question with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, God has broader shoulders. You can ask him that directly. <laughs> so for those listening online, Patty wants to know why women have to go through many more life cycles than what men do. So, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Yep. I think all of those questions, I mean, I think that's part of the, the judgment and the reward process when we leave here and go, that those questions are answered. All of that, all of these complex questions with, the, with, with multiplicity of answers are answered for us in heaven. I do believe that. Um, but I will say this, and this is a hint to where I would go with that. I think... All of us are going to be stunned when we end up in heaven and we can see the full weight of the kinds of decisions that humans make for other humans and the impact those decisions make when you mess with foods, when you mess with chemicals, when you mess with industry, when you do all of those kinds of things without really thinking about its full impact upon humans. 
we are only finding out now how our diet has an enormous impact upon the psychological health of people. From autism uh, to, um, to Alzheimer's. So, um, so a lot of the diseases that we have, in what, what you, you know this, at least 80% of the diseases that people are treated for are psychosomatic. Do you know what I mean by that? In other words, when I get nervous, I overeat. And when I overeat, I gain weight. And when I gain weight, I get high blood pressure and I get cholesterol and all those kinds of things. It's psychosomatic. So 80% of the treatment that takes place in the hospital has a psychosomatic foundation to it, basis. So, um, so I think that we're all going to be surprised when we come to realize in heaven how the decisions that we make have this, you know, whether you're, you're an industrialist whether you, whether you work in, in uh, uh, rocket science or whatever it is that you do, that those, choice, that, that those powerful components of any society have wide-ranging impacts upon how that society works and how it impacts the health. Western Pennsylvania is among the most unhealthy places in the world to live because of the industry that was here for such a long time. The levels of mercury in our soil, for example, far exceed uh, what is true, true in other parts of our, our, our country. That's just, by one, what, that's just one example. I mean, remember, your parents drove through Pittsburgh in the middle of the day with their headlights on because there was so much pollution in the air. Do you think that didn't have an impact? If not on that generation, then the, then the then succeeding generations uh, in terms of the DNA and all that kind of stuff? It absolutely did. So, and not all of that can be teased out and understood in this life. But I do believe that we're gonna be stunned at that, there, the, at the impact that we make when, yeah. So n real quick, number three, what are the three most common reasons why people say they reject Jesus? I mean, if, if you have a family member and they know about your faith or you have friends and you've talked to them about your faith a little bit and they say, eh, that's just not, I can't, I just, I don't, eh, I can't do that. Uh, what would they say? Yeah, Melissa? The what? Okay. Okay. All right, good. So a really poor witness. So many people reject Jesus because the witness they saw in the lives of Christians didn't comport with what they said they believed, okay? 
Yeah, no, that's that's true. That's a great one. Yep, uh, Carol. They don't think they're that bad. Yeah, okay. They don't think they need to be saved. Okay. Yeah, no, that's another. That's another really good one. Yeah, Frank. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's just too, we're too. I'm too busy. Too much going on in my life to have time for 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 religion. Time for Christ. Yeah. That's another very good one. Yep. Ada. Yeah, he was not the son of God. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was just uh, on my philosophical websites. I all the time I get well, this religion is just an invention. Christ was an invention. He didn't really exist. Blah blah blah, blah all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah, Melissa. Oh, yeah, the philosophical worldview that we know as progressivism is, is the most dangerous worldview since the dawn of time because fundamentally that worldview believes that human beings are engaged in a project of evolving so that given enough time, enough education, enough opportunity, we can, be, we can make ourselves our own gods. I kid you not, that is what fundamentally the progressive elite believe. It's just a matter of time before we figure it out for ourselves. We don't need God. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, so there, you don't need Jesus because we can do it ourselves. Yeah, yeah, okay, good. So see, you are engaged in some fashion or another in apologetics every day. You're asking these questions. You're wondering what the answers are. You're wondering how you would provide some kind of a meaningful answer to people who ask. So this is all very relevant and very real to everyone here. And the truth of the matter is that sometimes... Sometimes some of us avoid engaging some of those people who might ask these questions because we're just not sure how we would answer them. And so what we want to do is we want to give you some confidence about how you might engage people who have these kinds of questions. So I want to go on now and uh, try to get through uh, what I can here for you um, this morning. Uh, but I just really wanted to raise the awareness that when we talk about apologetics or the defense of the faith, it's not some ethereal thing that's out here. It's very real. It's a part of every, every one of our lives. And so... I hope that that helps us to embrace it. Now, I just want to remind everybody the following three things. 
the most, infected, the most effective and compelling way to do apologetics, apart from what we were talking about this morning, apart from the classical discussion of what apologetics is, number one, this is very important, a loving, loving unity in, in the body of believers. If you and I live in loving uni unity and oneness with each other, we are doing something that the world doesn't do very well. We are doing something the world doesn't, and it makes us compelling. If there are unbelievers outside these walls, and they walk in here, and they see how we relate, and how we love, and how we care, I mean, that's what Josephus said, a great historian during Jesus' time. He, he just said, Oh, how they love each other. I mean, Josephus is one of the most cited ancient historians in, the Palestine, in, in Palestine that there is. And that was one of the comments that he made about Christians. Oh, how they love each other. Number two, authentic Christ-likeness in the believer. No one's interested in anything we have to say unless they see the veracity in what it is that we believe. They don't, it doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It just means it has to be pretty compelling that you're trying hard to look like Jesus. If it doesn't look like to believers, non-believers that you're trying to look like Jesus, you don't probably have much to say to them. So everyone here in this room is obligated to work within their lives to look as much like Jesus in their language, in their actions, in their presence, as much as possible. And always know that we are being watched. We are on trial every day. If you say to people, you go to church, you are on trial. Number three, obvious evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, <clears throat> which is one reason why I read, had them read this morning. Obvious evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. And so some of you went out, when I talked about the fruit of the Spirit, I did that little series on that. You went out and you got some little plaque or something. We got a couple um, to put up in your house, just as a reminder. Again, if you practice the fruits of the Spirit, you are doing something the world does not do. And it makes you really, it makes you really stand out. So what are some barriers and hindrances to, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to skip this section because I want, to, I want to spend some time in Scripture, and I'll come back to this next time. I'll pick it up um, when I speak again in two weeks. So <clears throat> remember I said that the argument could be made that every gospel writing and New Testament epistle functioned as an apologetic on behalf of Christ and the faith? Because they were written to inform, correct, and rebuke errant teaching and misunderstanding about Christ. And there is a lot of errant teaching and misunderstanding about Christ. Melissa was alluding to that earlier. Understand that when people say they reject Christianity, probably a lot of what they are rejecting doesn't even exist. It's misinformation. It's a lot of stuff that really doesn't exist. So here, in light of this, here's the Apostle Paul's apologetic on the 
historical reliability of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And I just want to work through this text a little bit. Because here's this is, this is what you would call a, a kind of evidentialist argument. So I'm going to talk about, in terms of the classic apologetics, there's one called the evidentialist argument. This is the intertestament, the, the, the biblical evidence. In other words, Paul is doing this in real time. He's, he's giving this evidence in real time in his day of the existence of Jesus and his work. So in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, we read where he says, Now I would, now he's talking to the Corinthians, which is a, in some respects a notorious church. They have a lot of issues, they're pretty liberal, have a lot of stuff going on there. And so he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand. So he's reminding them. So around 52 AD, he went to the city of Corinth, and he preached the gospel to them. And he's reminding them that I was there of what you had been taught. I'm reminding you, he says, this is what I taught you about the gospel. That is the good news that I preached. This good news was glad tidings. And you received it. You accepted what I said. You converted to Christ. You, you became Christians. And now you stand on that. You've built your life around it. I'm reminding you, he says, this is what happened. In 52 AD or so, I came and I preached this good news to you. And you received this good news. And you built your life around it. Sounds, pretty, sounds similar to us. Verse 2, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word, to the logos, that very powerful word in the New Testament. If you hold fast, you are being saved if you hold fast. And by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached. So if you hold fast to this good news, if you continue to build your life around it, if you make it a priority, if it's the thing around which you measure everything else, and, and so by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And in every church I've ever been into, it has a certain percentage of people who believe in vain. They're cultural Christians. They were Christians who came to faith since birth. And they, they practice what they practice out of habit, not out of heart. How do we practice our faith here? Do we practice it out of habit or do we practice it out of heart? Are we holding fast? Do we see it as good news? Is what Jesus did for us on the cross still good and precious good news? So he's reminding them of all that. Then he goes on to say in verse 3, For I delivered, 
This is a sort of a classic word where basically it's like when you open the door and the FedEx man is there and he has a package and he hands it to you. It's like that. I deliver to you. So it's very, um, uh, it, there's this very strong sense of almost this physical sense, this tactile sense in which I gave to you, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I gave to you what happened to me. I gave to you what, what, was, what had been delivered to me. I passed it on, he says. That Christ died for our sins. So this was of first importance. Of all the things Paul says, I've, I've said to you, of all the things that you know about Christ, the most important thing is Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins. I'm reminding you that Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures. So he's appealing to authority. So this is part of the evidentialist argument already. So Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He's appealing to biblical authority in their lives. And he's saying... Christ died according to what the scriptures say. The authority of scripture tells us that Christ died for our sins. And so he's probably citing Isaiah 53 or Hosea 6.2 or Jonah 1.17 or 2.1, but that's what he's saying. He's appealing to this authority. The evidence that Christ died for our sins is in the scripture, he's saying, in the Old Testament. It's there. So everybody in that region would have understood that the Old Testament was a source of authority. It was a text that people had respect for, and they understood that it needed to be revered. Verse 4, and then he goes on to say that he was buried. That's a statement of fact, evidence. That he was raised, a statement of fact, evidence. On the third day, a statement of fact, in accordance with the scriptures. A statement of fact. These are evidentialist arguments that he's saying to the Christians in Corinth. He's reminding them of the evidence that's there. That he was buried. We know that Jesus was buried. That he was raised. We have witnesses, eyewitnesses that saw that he was raised. And that he was raised on the third day. And that all of this can be found in the scriptures as evidence. Verse 5, and he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter. And he not only appeared to Peter, but he appeared to John. Well, why would he say, and he appeared to Peter and John? Because Peter and John were like the big kahuna apostles. They were authorities. So if you wonder whether or not he, uh, he appeared after the resurrection, talk to those two guys, Peter and John, because they are primary apostles. And then to the twelve, he appeared to the twelve. So if you wonder whether or not he really appeared, then go, go talk to the other ones. Because they will tell you they saw him. Evidence. Verse 6, then he appeared, statement of fact, to more than 500 brothers. So there's this additional 500 people that he appeared to all at once. 
If you wonder whether or not he resurrected himself, not only did he appear to two of the primary apostles, he also appeared to the rest of the apostles. And not only did he appear to them, but he appeared to 500. Now, some of them have fallen asleep, he says, but if you wanted to double-check any of this as evidence, go talk to all 500 of those people. Most of them are still living. They will tell you. They all saw the same thing. Evidence. Testimony. Now, what I, I do want to say is, because this is what people in the world do. You say, well, you're talking about the Bible as a historical document. Yeah. Well, you know, how can you say that's a reliable document? I mean, because there's some things in there we can't confirm. And I would say, and there's a whole bunch of other historical documents out there that people like you cite all the time as evidence of what took place in history. So if you can do that with those historical documents, and I can do that with this as a historical document, the same, the same criteria, who gets to decide which historical document is true. There's plenty of stuff in here that we can't confirm historically. Just because we can't confirm every, everything of it historically doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means we haven't had time to do it or the opportunity. Yeah, real quick, Melissa. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah, so we, we gobble up stuff that other people write with no peer review, no, 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 uh, no uh, scientific basis or whatever, and we think we, we, we trust in that, but, but we can't trust in something that has been a, I mean, this has a 2,500-year history. Uh, did you want to say something, uh, Sean? Oh, okay, I thought you were, okay. Okay. Verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then, verse 7, then he appeared to James. So he's appealing to authority. Why this authority? Because James was the brother of Jesus, and James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So Paul was leveraging all of the all of the substantial evidence that he can to remind them of the significance that there is, there's verifiable proof of what happened with Jesus. The, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles again. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so he goes on to say how um, he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And so Paul came to faith when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus because he was in the process of persecuting the church. And it was only when he was struck down on the road to Damascus that Paul came to faith. And then later on, uh, the Apostle Paul um, became uh, a hero for the faith. He has some interesting things to say about that further on. So here in the text, even the Apostle Paul is using what we call an evidentialist argument for the existence of Jesus and for his ministry, even in the text. So we use different kinds of evidentialist arguments for different questions, but I wanted to illustrate to you 
the importance. Now, let it not be lost on any of us that Paul is writing this to the Corinthians. If there's any church, if there's any church that resembles, in the old, if there's any church in the New Testament era that resembles the modern-day American church, it would be the church of Corinth. And so even as Paul is writing this to the Christians in Corinth, I am reading it to you. Remember, I am reminding you, There's, this is the evidence of Jesus Christ in his work in our lives. So that's where I'll, I'll end this today. Uh, next week, um, I'm going to, or two weeks, I'm going to spend some time on, um, on what are some barriers, just what are some barriers to what, uh, how we defend our faith. Some of those might surprise you. And, uh, and then I'm going to just give a brief overview of the different kinds of ways in which we can defend our faith. Um, and then I'll unpack those later, each of those later on in the summer, but that's kind of where we are. So uh, any, any parting, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, but any, any parting thoughts or questions? Or you all, again, I'll just ask you, are you all tracking with me on this? Is this okay? All right, good. Well, let's close in prayer, and then we'll have the elders come forward if they would.